0: you know you go from having a business which is you know to be honest with you it was really humming along so well and then everything just shut down and it's it's when you think about it it wasn't just restaurants in our state or in australia it was every restaurant across the globe shut down so there was just zero demand so it was it was really scary
1: really scary this is the deep in the weeds podcast i'm anthony huckstep In Japan, wagyu is revered for its unique marbling and rich, buttery texture. There are a wealth of wagyu folklore tales of beer drinking to massages, but when wagyu first landed on plates in Australia during the 90s, it ignited an energy for red meat like never before. Wagyu, like many luxury produce, is often sold through the restaurant trade, a sector now slowly opening stores again. Where is it left such premium produce like Wagyu? Scott De Bruin is the owner of Mayura Station, where full-blooded Wagyu are living the sweet life on the limestone coast in South Australia. Scott, how are you going?
0: Very well, Anthony. Thank you for having me on your podcast.
1: Oh, look, it's great to chat. Um, I've been on the farm, and you've uh, showed me around. It's pretty extraordinary what you're doing down there, and look forward to talking about that in detail. But I wondered if we could start. You know, you've got a product that um, you know is highly regarded throughout Asia and also through you know some of our best restaurants in Australia. What was the immediate impact for you with the pandemic, with the restaurants closing? Um, you know, when you when you say it, it actually just brought a chill down my spine
0: again. To be honest with you, um, look, it was just one of shock um, as everything started to shut down, and I think. I think we're all sort of. the The strange thing for me was that I supply a lot of our product into into Asia and into China, and I was talking to our distributors in China, and I was aware of what was happening with coronavirus, but for some reason, I, I just had this thought process like it was it, it was happening in China and it wasn't coming here, and I think you know when when it actually did uh, that reality um, took hold that it is here and and that um, food service and life as we know was not, no, it was shut down. It was just one of shock, you know, speaking to all our distributors and, and clients and restaurants and, you know, you go from having a business which is, you know, to be honest with you, it was really humming along so well and then everything just shut down and it's, it's – when you think about it, it wasn't just restaurants in our state or in Australia, it was every restaurant across the globe shut down, so there was just zero demand. So it was it was really scary,
1: really scary. And, you know, you've got a product that keeps growing. You know, you can't stop cattle growing, and um, you also grow all the feed for the cattle. Like, what, what was your initial immediate thoughts when this sort of hit and you sort of lost all that trade overnight, literally? Yeah, so I guess because there was no
0: um, – I, I didn't know what was going to happen to sales like so speaking to as i said speaking to our customers everybody was shut so your immediate reaction is oh my god i'm not going to sell anything um, so there would be no income coming in but as you say you know we we're a primary producer so we're a completely vertically integrated operation with eight and a half thousand head of cattle and and they still need to be fed every day and you know you' still got to run all your employees because in primary production you know it's a seasonal, Operation, so you can't just pull the pin. You have to keep on forging ahead and planting your crops and getting everything ready, so the expenses still keep rolling in. So it was um, we basically sat down and looked at any expenses we thought we could cut out of our business and and anywhere that we could try and direct revenue and um, or try and salvage some revenue. So we started. Um, one of the things we did initially was we went through our cow herd and we. We said, okay, well, these are lower-performing breeding animals. Um, let's sell them all. Um, we then went through all our bulls and said, okay, well, these these animals look like they're not performing as well as what we'd hoped, so let's sell them. Um, and we ran through and we basically, uh, I, I guess, did a big cull of animals that didn't uh, we thought weren't um, in our top end or our top – top production animals. So we sold those to get some income in. Um, we actually, at the same time, we'd, we'd organised and I'd been working on for the best part of 12 months to have our first ever on-property stud sale, um, selling some of our most elite genetics, and that was on March 26th. So we had the sale all organised, and it was a big event happening here, and um, I guess everything started shutting down, so the sale moved to be online, um, and that was very nerve-wracking giving given speaking to everybody across you know internationally and here in Australia everybody was just in panic mode so we didn't know how that was going to go but we we still forged on with it um, and fortunately for us that was actually a, a big success so we were we were really lucky in that situation and that bought us a bit of time um, and took the pressure off uh, initially and then we just started working on where are we going to start placing product because we just needed to keep on, keep
1: on producing. As you say, you know, the farm must still keep operating. It doesn't just shut down. And you've got an award-winning restaurant uh, on the property as well. Um, what, what's happened with that that's kind of – I guess it's kind of reliant on tourists too, which has been difficult? Um, what's, what's happened with the restaurant?
0: Yeah, the restaurant um, couldn't trade. Uh, same as, you know, um, all restaurants across Australia, It was you couldn't have any guests. Uh, initially, um, our full-time and part-time staff. Their the, our main concern was keeping them employed because you know you build up such a, a great team of quality people, and you, you don't want to lose them. And you also want to keep them motivated. So we had to think about ways that we could keep them busy. Um, and you know they, they were fantastic through it. I have to say, I mean, all of them were incredibly nervous to start off with, uh, as you know. I'm sure everybody you've spoken to has been like that. But we, we pivoted like so many restaurants in Australia. We started doing um, uh, pre-packaged meals for people. So we'd um, do the preparation so people could take those meals and cook them at home. Uh, we started doing retail sales from the restaurant of, of beef packs and so forth. And and that was really well supported by the community, I have to say. We were, um, we were really happy with that. We started... <laughs> Um, the uh, I guess the low and slow movement in Australia has kept on growing, and we've got a big smoker out here at the restaurant, so we started smoking briskets and selling them in the local supermarkets, and and doing all those sorts of things just to uh, make sure everybody was, you know, really challenged. I guess because that that was the other thing, because we we're all everyone was going home and wondering just about all the uncertainty. So we thought we just have to keep on challenging ourselves and keep on trying to deliver a product out into, even if it's just our local community, that um, people would really enjoy. So it became a bit about menu creation
1: and and um, research as well at the same time. Yeah, your product is, you know, really at the top end in regards to beef because um, there's Wagyu and there's Wagyu and there's Wagyu, you know. So do you, can you tell us a bit about what's different about Mayura Wagyu and, and what you do there? Sure. Um,
0: So we started producing Wagyu a bit over about 25 years ago and we're a family business here Um, and what we've done was we actually imported in full-blood Wagyu cattle from Japan. Uh, They came in via America and they arrived here back in 1998 and we've embarked on uh, building a, a large breeding herd here at Mayura Station. So the whole concept around our business is to be a one-source operation so that uh, it's a completely vertically integrated operation. So we're, we're breeding all our cows. Um, we actually grow the majority of our crops that we use in our feeding program. Um, the animals are, are grown right here on the Limestone Coast, so um, they'd never move off the property. Uh, we then take all that product um, through the value chain and we retain ownership as a branded beef product, uh, which we then sell um, here in Australia, but also globally. And some of the things that we've done over the, the years, we, we've really focused on ration development um, or nutrition, if you like, to produce a, a product which is really quite unique um, that can stand out in the marketplace. And, and one of the things that we've, we've done is we've developed what we call our, our flavour ration. And it gives Mayura a really unique flavour um, that makes it stand out and it's distinct from from other brands. And one of the things we feed here that's a little bit different is we feed chocolate to our cattle.
1: And how did how did that come about? <laughs> Can you tell us a story about why, how you would introduce <laughs> that to cattle? Well, um, it was really interesting um,
0: actually because what happened was I was working with um, a gentleman by the name of Shogo Takeda and he was the guy that um, we actually purchased our cattle from. And um, – He was teaching me about, you know, what you have to do in feeding these cattle to get the best results and he basically sat me down and said, you know, these are all the ingredients you need to feed your cattle but the problem is some of those ingredients are only available in Japan or um, alternatively some of those ingredients are actually produced in northern Australia and we're, we're right down south so we actually didn't have access to some of those products so... What we sat down and did is we, we said, okay, well, what are the nutritional aspects of these different ingredients and what possible alternatives could there be? And one of the ingredients was um, it had – it was incredibly high in energy but it had quite a lot of fat in it as well and um, we couldn't get access to it. So we um, came up with this specific mixture of um, chocolates and biscuit meal and, and a lot of, it had a lot of sugar. Um, Hence, a lot of energy in it, and we started feeding that to the cattle. The cattle absolutely love it. Um, They follow you around the pens if you've got a bit of it in your back pocket. (laughs) And uh, we started feeding that to the cattle, and then um, our customers were saying, "You know, we look at your beef, and you know, we put it side by side against other wagyu. It looks the same, but yours tastes so different." Um, And it's really this
1: specific ration, this flavour ration that we've come up with that gives it its unique flavour and unique appeal. Have you had any challenges with it, you know, and and what has the response been from Chefs Globally in regards to your Wagyu? <laughs> I think overall it's, it's, it's been
0: um, really, really positive. Initially we didn't tell people about it because I, I thought about it as like, oh, you know, this is our secret ingredient that, you know, we're providing and I didn't want people to know what it was. But then I thought, well, actually that's pretty silly, isn't it? Because if you don't tell people what you're doing, how are they ever going to know? So... Uh, we started to um, tell all our uh, the users of our product about it and I have to say, you know, the response is always really positive because chocolate's something you can relate to. You know, there's not, um, you know, most people really enjoy it and when you tell people that the cattle are eating it too, you know, you generally just get a big smile on everybody's face and they think, oh, okay, that's
1: I like it. It's a good idea. Can you tell us a bit more about sort of the lifestyle that they live? You know, obviously, they've got an interesting diet They're You're producing all of the... Um, feed for them apart from their chocolate rations that they get. Um, what what is life like on the farm there? So what happens is, um, uh,
0: I guess you know, as farmers, you know, our number one priority is our animals' well-being. So we take a lot of um, or, or take a lot of effort into making sure our cattle uh, have live an excellent quality life. So we spend a lot of time here improving the quality of the pastures on the farm, so that as you know, as they're Um, actually being read with their mother that they have really excellent quality nutrition Uh, so that's very important for us Um, and then as they go through we actually wean all our calves at six months of age Uh, and then we put them in like a a free range feeding environment if you like so we've got these beautiful rolling hills here on the limestone coast um, which have been formed over the well over many millions of years because we are literally on the coast here so these are, um, if you like, they're old sand hills um, which have formed over the years and they actually have, have a hard crust and there's been a, a limestone layer that's actually um, grown on top of these hills. So it's, it's really quite spectacular and beautiful. And uh, the cattle are actually allowed to um, free roam and we feed them a specific, what we call a backgrounding ration uh, from, a, from six months um, we look after those cattle through to 18 months of age in these free range feeding areas and then we have this beautiful big barn that we built which is a, a bit like a, a horse stable if you like for our for our Wagu cattle uh, it has um, sawdust floors uh, and it's uh, under cover for the cattle so they they enter that in that area um, from 18 months through to about 26 twenty seven months of age and we call it the the mayura Mukau motel and, <laughs> Because it's about it's it really is a motel for cows, so um, it's a really great quality lifestyle for them. You know they're not exposed to the winter elements and also the the heat from the sun during summer. So they're very very comfortable animals. So we take a lot of pride in that facility, and um, you know it's a, it's a really great environment for these cattle to be able to be raised and and grow out.
1: What's some of the challenges involved in growing you know wagyu of the grade that you do? So I guess. One of the things that has always been the challenge for us is that
0: we've been trying to grow the supply of our beef. Um, demand hasn't really been a, a big issue for us, but being able to supply that, the growing demand has always been a challenge. So, what that means is we're we've because we grow full blood Wagyu cattle. That means it has to be a Wagyu mum and a Wagyu dad. So, for us to be able to increase our production we've every year we've got to keep more females so if you like when cattle are born you get roughly the same as people you get 50% males 50% females and we take those females and we're adding them back into our breeding program so we're growing our herd what that means is you're only um, from the calves that you would have for revenue you're only really picking up 50% of that and but you're growing your breeding herd so we're making it bigger and bigger all the time but the turnover is very slow because, um, as I said, we're the animals um, are grown out to about 26 months of age, so it's a bit over two years. So the biggest challenge for us has been managing our cash flow as we grow our business to be able to meet the, the demand for our product.
1: What's some of the challenges that you've had? Because Wagyu is really um, what's well, been everywhere in the last in the last two decades and you can see it on a pub menu and you can see it in you know a three-hat restaurant. Um Obviously, there is different types of wagyu out there, and you're doing full blood, um, which there aren't many in Australia. Um, could you give us some comparisons and perhaps challenges in sort of comparing what you do to others others on the market? Yeah, I
0: think initially there was um, being able to educate the consumer is is a big thing, and you know, people like yourself um, have been very helpful in being able to educate the consumer, um, and just asking these questions is good. Um, because there's lots of different quality levels of wagyu, but you also have lots of different cuts as well. So, for instance, you know, um, from an animal, you don't just get nine plus strip loin, you also get a lot of ha- hamburger, you know, based trimmings or hamburger mints as well. And that you've still got to be able to sell that as well. So, you know, we've seen um, wagyu come up in fast food restaurants and so forth. And I think the real challenge is to make sure that the the quality and the integrity of the product is upheld throughout these different um, different outlets and venues so that when people actually try Wagyu, they, they get that real experience of, of quality so that they say, oh, I, I, I want to buy that again. Um, and I think that's that's been a real challenge out there as the industry has been evolving. But it's getting better and better all the time with the quality level of Wagyu here in Australia continuing to improve. Um, and I guess, you know, educating people about those different cuts as well, is, is um, that's quite the challenge and it's been an ongoing challenge in the meat industry for a, a long time because it is, it's quite complicated. You know, there's about 32 different cuts out of an animal and they all eat differently and they need to be cooked differently. And so um, the food service has done a terrific job in, in taking on those different cuts and finding out the best value out of, you know, the lower value cuts as well. Um, and they've become very popular, you know, things like flank steak and um, skirt steak and so forth throughout the hospitality sectors become really, really popular. And it's,
1: um, and, you know, it's got a great flavour profile as well. How do you describe the flavour of Wagyu, uh, you know, to set it apart from other type of beef? Yeah, I think there's um, really different, um, like different brands have different flavour profiles.
0: So, but one thing you can say, like, if you're generalising about wagyu, you can say that you know a highly marbled piece of wagyu is incredibly tender. It's incredibly juicy as well, but it has a real richness of flavour. It's much stronger in flavour than uh, your traditional, um, say, grass-fed steak or or a grain-fed steak. That is really, really rich in flavour. So you don't actually need to eat a lot of it. As far as the Mayura product, I guess I can speak about from personal experience. But you know, we find that our beef has a real sweetness in flavour, and I guess it comes back to <laughs> what you said in the beginning. You know, they they live the sweet life. You know, they do get to eat chocolate and so forth as well, uh, and that actually is reflected in the quality of the beef. But it also,
1: again, it's rich and buttery, and yeah, it has it's it's very distinct when you first try it. Uh, Mayura Station has been around longer than far longer than you and I. Um, you know, what, what made you start? Um, you know there was cattle being grown there before, and it's got a long history. But why did you start with the Wagyu? Why did why did that begin? Um, so I personally didn't start that. My father started that,
0: um, and um, Dad used to travel. He was Dad was in the timber industry. Um, he was involved in uh, renewable pine plantations, and he used to travel to Japan frequently and uh, when he'd go to Japan he was fortunate enough to to eat Wagyu um, and you know he just loved the taste of it and, and thought it was so different to the beef we have available here in Australia and he heard on the grapevine that some Wagyu were were going to leave Japan and he he jumped at the opportunity to to bring them here to Mayura Station.
1: And, you know your wagyu sold you know all over Australia and all over the world you know was there a moment that that stands out for you where you thought, you know, I think this is going to really work, you know, in the early days? Yeah. Yeah, I remember um, we first started, we took our
0: product to Singapore. Um, this was uh, was in 2003. And I remember um, going out doing, uh, it was our first real shot at exporting and we'd um, aligned ourselves with a distributor in Singapore called Indaguna. And we're out doing sales calls and showcasing our product. And I think it was it was still very early on. And we uh, I won't mention the name of the, the restaurant or the chef, but um, we took our product in to see this particular chef, and he was a very very well respected chef in Singapore. And we walked in, and he said, "What are you what are you here to show me?" And I said, oh, "I'm here to show you some some wagyu beef." And he said, "Where are you from?" And I said, "I'm from Australia." And he said, oh, Mm, Australian beef is crap you can forget it there's the door I thought oh wow that was short <laughs> <laughs> and I said to him look you know here's, here's a sample of our product um, please try it and you know get back to the team at Indigoona if you like it well anyway he, he, uh, I didn't think he would um, the way he'd sort of spoken but he, he took the uh, he took the sample he cooked it that night and he actually made contact that night and said this is the best beef I've ever tried in my life you know, we need this on our menu. Wow. Um, and to take that turnaround from, you know, all Australian beef was crap to, to that was yeah, it was quite remarkable. But anyway, we struck up quite a strong friendship and, you know, every year um, uh, for his big birthday celebrations, you know, there was a lot of Mayura on the menu and he used to take product back to France um, for his family celebrations and, you know, we, we built a really strong relationship. And I think that's probably that probably is exactly right, Huck, you know, the relationships we've built with our customers over the years, you know, I still, the first person that ever bought Mayura Beef still buys it. And we've never we've never really lost a customer. You know, people that have tried our product and come onto the program have stayed with us and those people have become my great friends over the years and I think that, that probably says it all, you know. You, you build these really strong relationships with people and I think that's really what's got us through this whole coronavirus crisis, to be honest with you.
1: Well, how important are those relationships given the circumstances and, and moving forward? You know, you're very, you know, the Asian market is very important for you as well. Is there signs of recovery you're seeing with the mar- international markets at the moment?
0: Yeah, there really is. There really is. So there's been a number of markets which didn't really slow down, which was quite amazing. So um, we're all familiar with what's been happening in Hong Kong. It's a city that's been in a lot of turmoil. But we actually found through this whole um, situation that their demand actually increased, which was quite phenomenal. Um, and once again, you know, uh, our distributor there, he's a good friend of mine, and you know, he just said, you know, whatever we got to do to get through this, you know, we'll get through it. And he'd experienced all the riots and everything that had, it had been a huge downturn on their business over the last 12 months. And, you know, he was stressed, but, you know, we just said, you know, let's just keep forging ahead. We will get through it. And... He started selling beef online and, you know, demand increased. Um, And same in Taiwan, similar thing. Um, Our customer there, you know, they just kept on increasing their demand. That was, you know, we were very fortunate. It was probably the hardest thing was getting it to them, to be honest with you, Huck. Yeah. Because um, we rely on air freight to get our product into market and planes stopped flying. And even now, today, it's incredibly hard to get product into market, you know, just to get space on on planes. Um, and the costs have gone through the roof to do that. So that's probably one of the biggest struggles. China's consumption of our product has increased as well. Um, and we sell some product into the Middle East, into Dubai. Um, that did have a short hiatus. They missed a month's uh, order, but um, they're starting to come back online too. And... Probably the 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 best market indicators was talking to the uh, the guys in Hong Kong because they went through these the staged restrictions or the restrictions lifting as well, and the food service sector kept having different um, uh, different rules. So it started off at you know half capacity, and then it started, and then it moved to how many people per square meter. Um, and they they have navigated through it, but the the um, hospitality sector is starting to get busier there as well, and and opening up uh, really strongly. And I think the big concern for everybody was how would people survive and how would they how would they reopen and get going? You know, would people come out and dine? And, and what they're seeing is yeah, people people are coming out and they're dining, which is which is terrific.
1: Has this situation? Um change your perspective on what you want to do with your brand and with the cattle at all moving forward? Probably gave me a bit more perspective on my personal life, huh? (laughs) You know,
0: I think one of the real positives out of this was, uh, and I'm sure many people would agree, was we got to spend more time with family, um, which was, you know, it was really, really a positive thing. We were all, everyone was very stressed throughout it without a doubt. But we did get to spend time with our loved ones, or our immediate loved ones, I should say. And I know for some people, they weren't able to because they might have been in different states or different countries, so I do feel for those people. But where we are in regional Australia, we were very lucky. You know, my family all live with me, so I got to spend more time with them, which was, which was yeah, wonderful. So Normally, I'm, I'm busy flying around the world selling products, so to be back home and spending time with them was, was terrific. Um, as far as how we go in continuing to grow our business, we'll probably be a little bit more conservative initially, make sure we've got a bit more um, put away for the rainy day.
1: So a little earlier you're talking about all the different cuts there are um, to the animal and how they all need to be sold if you're going to be in the business of growing animals for humans to eat. Um, What what are some of the cuts that are your favourites and how would you cook them? You know, it's,
0: um. <laughs> that's a really hard question. Um, I'd like to say I, I like all of them equally uh, or love all of them equally, just <laughs> like you do with your children. <laughs> but it's um, – look, there's some real standouts, uh, and it just depends on, you know, how you're cooking. But if you want to just go for straight-up quality grilling, like I just, I love a piece of strip loin. It's it's hard to go past that. It's it's got such fantastic texture. Um, the muscle fibers are all really close together, and, and the flavour's just beautiful. It's got a little bit more, you know, um, bite to it than some of the other cuts, but um, the flavour's just spectacular. That's probably my favourite grilling cut, um, and then you get into the different cooking styles. So. Uh, things like you know, when you get into the low and slow movement, it's you know, it's really hard to go past a, a really good smoked brisket like that. Yeah, you get good quality yeah. rubs on it, and oh my god, you know that's you just salivate <laughs> over that stuff just thinking about it. Uh, and even even today, like I, I actually really really appreciate a great quality cheeseburger. And I know that's going to sound <laughs> you know bizarre coming from you know when you go from that real. Dining, but you get a really good quality wagyu patty and good quality cheese, and you know, for a casual meal with the kids or something like that. Oh, I love it! <laughs> <laughs> You're making me hungry. <laughs> now, <mate. laughs> um, but and then, and then, then and I've got one more. I have to, I can't leave this one out. Um, it's a, it's probably a cut that's starting to show up on restaurant menus now. Um, in Australia, we describe it terribly. Uh, the, the actual um description is the chuck tail flap it sounds you know sounds great to put that on a menu but um that is just an amazing piece of meat it's it's um its depth of flavor and level of marbling is just out of this world and the japanese actually call that cut the zabuton because it's uh, zabuton is actually the name for a for a pillow and it looks a little bit like a, a pillow you know and it's soft and yeah, it's an amazing piece of meat. So if you ever see a Zabuton on a menu, buy it.
1: Well, how do you feel eating your own Wagyu in restaurants? And has there been a real standout experience and that a chef's done something pretty amazing with your Wagyu? Oh, um, well,
0: <laughs> I tend to um, always want to buy it when I see it on the menu. So um, if we're out dining anywhere, you know, people think I'm a bit weird that I want to buy it, but I just – you know, oh, I really want to try it and see what the chef's doing with it and I've, I've probably tasted it with them in the, in the kitchens but it's great then to be able to share it with your guests as well. Um, there's some just some really fantastic um, ways of, of utilising the product. Um, Chef um, Josh Rain down at Tetsuya's does a wonderful job with our strip line and he's had some really creative ways of resting the product um, where, he, where he actually rests it in rendered down Wagyu fat. So the trimmings from the, the strip line, he renders that down and after he's grilled it, he, he actually puts it in a bath of of the rendered Wagyu fat and lets it just rest in that instead of just resting it to, on a baking tray or something like that. That's that's quite amazing. Um, oh, there's so many different, different versions. Um, over in Hong Kong, uh, we we supply a chef called Umberto Bombana. He's got a, a fantastic restaurant uh, called Otto Amezzo and he's a, uh, an Italian chef and he um, serves one and a half kilo Mayura ribeyes. Wow. And he just gets the most amazing crust on these ribeyes. Um, they, uh, it's grilled out in the kitchen and they bring it out and they show, uh, show everybody and then they take it away and they cut it up and they split it into the spinalis and the eye muscle. And and they bring back the, all of this presented differently on different plates and it's just, it's just beautiful just to see. It's really remarkable. It's quite the show.
1: What's the plans for the restaurant moving forward? It's a, an award-winning restaurant and, you know, I've, I've shared lunch with you there. It was bloody amazing. And you've got, you know, cows literally, you know, <laughs> meters away. Um, it's pretty extraordinary. Um, you know, how do you feel about the restaurant moving forward given what we've just been through?
0: Yeah, it's going to be a little bit tricky for the restaurant initially because, um, you know, the we have the four square metre rule. Uh, we're allowed – our numbers are allowed to be up to um, – in, in South Australia, it's up to 300 people per venue now, um, but you're still restricted to um, this four square metre rule, which means that we're at about – Probably forty percent of our capacity, so we're still we're very down on numbers. But what we've decided to do was to to lift the experience, to provide people with um, you know more of a a high uh, it was always high um, like high quality, but to add more courses and you know so that people actually are there for longer. They're enjoying more and more cuts, uh, and just to to elevate that complete dining experience to showcase some of these harder to find cuts that you know, are a bit trickier to find out
1: from our product and it give people a real wow experience while they're here. Do you think that sort of um, more localised experience and um, appreciating local be- will become more prevalent? You know, the pan- pandemic has certainly seen an increase in focus on Australian produce uh, have you have you noticed that increase increase in your local area as well?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think
1: community support.
0: I think that's been something that you know you're really proud to be part of your community because everybody is getting behind each other and supporting them and asking how can they help. And I just think that's so wonderful to see. You know that you know the Australian spirit's a great spirit, but then you know you get this community spirit. Bonded in as well, and everybody supporting each other. Oh, I just think it's, yeah, it's terrific. And to be able to support you know local growers of fruit and vegetables, and you know just to for everybody to get together, and uh, there's no doubt that consumers really really appreciate being able to come back out and enjoy that produce.
1: What do you hope uh, moving forward for Australian producers of such amazing uh, products like your own? Um, moving forward, as we sort of the baby steps, you know, post COVID, you know, what's your hope for the Australian food industry?
0: I think one of the things, as as farmers, we were really proud of during um, COVID was how much people actually appreciated primary producers, um, knowing that we're out there producing, you know, food for them, you know, as an essential service. You know, we everybody kept on going, and we really appreciated. You know, the public support and throughout the farming community that was uh, everyone really appreciated the support they felt from uh, from from the public i hope that um, that appreciation of individual produce continues strongly and people support the regional producers uh, they support um, local families they support the all the farming families out there and and those stories get told um, in the wonderful establishments and restaurants around Australia. And people can hear those
1: stories. That's certainly what I hope continues. Well, mate, I um, very much look forward to seeing you again, hopefully on the property in the restaurant, perhaps in the near future. I'm definitely going to duck out and try and find a cheeseburger now because you've made me pretty hungry. Uh- <laughs> 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 really appreciate your time today. Um, keep in touch, Um and uh, look forward to hearing everything developing in the future
0: yeah thanks so much huck really appreciate you having me on your um, podcast today it was great to speak to you again and when the
1: borders reopen look forward to seeing you again this is the deep in the weeds podcast i'm anthony huckstep stay tuned as we share the stories of australia's hospital community suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic special thanks to executive producer rob Locke for making this all happen Follow us on Instagram at DeepinTheweeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepentheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.